My name is Jason Steinhauer. I'm an author, a public historian. I'm a podcast host. I'm the founder of the History Communication Institute and the creator of History Club here on Clubhouse. And I'm also a global fellow at the Wilson Center. And I am delighted today to have as my special guest here for this very important conversation, my friend, uh, Michael Glickman. Michael, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Good. Well, you sound great. Uh, can hear you loud and clear. So um, let me just do a couple things to set the stage for the conversation. And Michael, I'll ask you that while you're not talking, if you could put your microphone on mute, that way we don't hear the rustling in the background. That would be great. Perfect. And um, let me just kind of lay the groundwork a little bit for this conversation and we'll get right into it. Um, so for those of you who are new here, this is the History Club. History Club was started in August of 2020 here on Clubhouse. We think about the past and how the past shapes the present and the future. We've done a variety of events before here um, in the club. And uh, tonight we are doing a special program and broadcast for International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And I am thrilled that uh, we are also sponsored this evening by Flipboard. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that sponsorship in a little bit. And throughout the night, you'll be seeing links uh, to Flipboard content and other uh, articles that I'll be posting at the top of the room. And we are also recording this conversation uh, so that it can be listened to later, either on the app here on Clubhouse or uh, in the History Club website or wherever uh, else you may listen to podcasts. So it's going to be a great conversation. It's an important conversation and one that I'm really excited to have. And um, why don't we, before we even kind of set the stage and talk a little bit more about Flipboard and why we're having this particular subject, Michael, why don't I just ask you to take a minute or two to just introduce yourself and tell people uh, who you are, uh, where you come from, what's your background, and what's your connection to this topic that we're going to talk about tonight. Thanks so much, Jason, and uh, thanks for the work that you're doing. I, I think History Club and, and the books that you're writing and the, the scholarship that you're helping move forward, all of that's super important to uh, the field. So uh, congratulations and keep up the good work. So I'm Michael Glickman. I'm the founder and CEO of an entity called JMUSE. We're an arts and culture uh, philanthropic entity. So uh, we work on the public history side mainly with foundations and cultural organizations helping to take great content and make it more widely available and accessible uh, across the United States, Europe, and, uh, and Israel. My background is that I have served as president and CEO of the Holocaust Museum of New York, which is uh, also known as the Museum of Jewish Heritage. I led the Center for Jewish History, which is the world's largest archive on the Jewish experience. Uh, over 100 million documents and a half a million volumes in their uh, in their library. And uh, I've spent the better part of my career over the last two decades or so working in uh, Jewish cultural history, uh, trying to take stories from the past, make them relevant to the future, uh, make those connections so that people around the world had an opportunity to understand how they might connect and, and why that's relevant. So thrilled to be here tonight. Thanks again for having me. Yeah, and uh, of course, you and I have a connection because we have we both worked at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, which is the Holocaust Museum in Lower Manhattan. I worked there longer ago than I would care to admit. You've worked there more recently, and I only say that because that would reveal something about my age, which I would prefer not to reveal. 
but we do have that shared connection, although you and I have actually never met in person. So we're hopefully going to remedy that uh, one day soon when we when I get up to New York City. Looking forward to that. And uh, I was at the museum through 2019, uh, ran that institution for a few years and uh, had an opportunity to do some really tremendous and important work. That museum is the third largest Holocaust museum in the world. So uh, a really important collection and a deep experience in Holocaust history. And one of the best views in all of Manhattan, I must say. If you go to that museum, it's on the edge of the city in Battery Park City. It looks out over the Statue of Liberty and uh, the New York Harbor. And when you walk through those exhibits and you learn about the stories and you understand about the Holocaust and then you arrive at that view of the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island, it just, it's this, the symbolism and uh, the energy that sort of swells through you when you stand after going through that experience and look out onto that harbor, it really is quite moving, I would say. It's one of those places in New York that really helps shine a light on why that city is just so incredible. And uh, really uh, looking out at the Statue of Liberty, being on New York Harbor, having an understanding, if you want to connect it to Holocaust history, all of those immigrants who made their way to Ellis Island and the Statue of Liberty in the aftermath of the war, and certainly uh, like my family who came uh, many decades before, uh, really an important history and one that people should explore a bit more. Good. So let me, um, with that backdrop, let me talk a little bit about um, how this conversation came together. And for those of you who are here in the room, you can see I've pinned a link at the top to a Flipboard page, which actually talks about the very subject of our conversation tonight. Uh, you know, here in History Club, we're always trying to think about, okay, how do we ex critically examine the past and how do we find entry points into the past that will connect the past, the present, and the future. And obviously, you know, photography, such an important aspect of our lives in this 21st century world where we are snapping photographs on our cell phones and posting them online like crazy. And it also is, you know, one of those things when we think about history and we think about the past, we oftentimes think about the photographs and the iconic images. And that's oftentimes an entryway into learning about the past. But photographs can reveal as much about the past. Um, they can also conceal things about the past. And so I was thinking about how to make these conversations a reality and to connect these, these ideas of history and photography. And then I got into a conversation with Flipboard about it. And people might be familiar with Flipboard. Uh, those of us who have Android phones remember when Flipboard came installed as an app on our phones. It's a really, really cool uh, platform. And what's really cool about it uh, is that you can actually, as a creator, uh, create storyboards and take things from across the web and sort of curate your own mini exhibit about it and use it as an entry point into exploration of various topics. And so it just became this natural fit to kind of connect these ideas of history and photography and to do it using Flipboard. So if you'll see above me, there's this link that I've put together. Take a minute to click on it and you'll see that I've put together my own storyboard, sort of my own little mini exhibit that connects these ideas about photography and the Holocaust and the various images that we have and that have survived of Jewish life before the war, the images from the war, images after the war, even how we're still uncovering more images and photographed collections today. And I 
I encourage you to poke around on Flipboard and think about how you might be able to use it in your own life or in your own work. I was actually talking with them the other day that I really feel like this is a great tool for educators and there are a lot of uh, educators and history teachers actually using Flipboard for these purposes. So check it out, I'm on there. You can follow History Club on there and um, we're really, really grateful that they're making this conversation possible and that they were open to this collaboration. Uh, I'm really, really about these interdisciplinary partnerships where you bring tech together with scholarship and museums and history and writers and educators. So I think this is a cool example of how tech and history and education all kind of work together. So check it out and I'll put some more links up there throughout the night so people can get familiar with it. If you haven't checked out Flipboard in a while, check it out. It's a really cool and a powerful platform. So that's kind of how this conversation came together. And we're going to do more conversations like this. We'll do one in February. We'll do one in March and then beyond, hopefully as well. Um, in February, we'll talk about uh, civil rights photography. And in March for Women's History Month, we'll talk about photography and how it was used during the women's suffrage movement and the right for uh, women's rights to votes. Um, but tonight, we're going to talk about it in the context of the Holocaust and Holocaust education, what images tell us about the Holocaust, what they don't tell us about the Holocaust, um, how much they reveal, and how much we have to do some further digging. So Michael's the per perfect person to talk about all this with, so let's, uh, let's get right into it, Michael. Um, I actually just want to maybe just start off kind of easing into the conversation because it's such a heavy topic. There's so much to unpack. And obviously it is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And I feel like the fact that it is Holocaust Remembrance Day kind of ties in very well with this question of photography, because on some level, we maybe take this opportunity today and on Yom HaShoah later this year to see a photograph online, maybe see a photograph on social media, maybe go to a website like the Museum of Jewish Heritage or like the USHMM website and look at a couple images. And then tomorrow we've moved on with our lives and we're not thinking about the Holocaust anymore until the next anniversary comes around. I'm wondering in this 21st century age where we have access to all these photographs and we have these hashtags and these days, how do you think about the role that images are playing today in the formation of public memory around the Holocaust and public discourse around the Holocaust. And, and I think that'll take us into a next series of questions about specific photograph collections and specific images that we maybe are familiar with or not familiar with. So I think I'd answer that question pre-COVID very differently than I would today. Uh, today, we're seeing something that we haven't seen in recent memory, which is you know, we're, we're witnessing the trivialization of, of the Holocaust in a way that was once unimaginable. Uh, we, we've seen sort of the connection to Holocaust imagery and COVID and vaccines and, uh, and, and the images of places like Auschwitz appear in uh, political campaigns on social media, we're seeing photography do something. These uh, we're seeing photography around the Holocaust do something that, um, quite frankly, I've never seen over the course of my career. I mean, traditionally, what one would think about, and I, and I recognize, so International Holocaust Remembrance Day, it's relatively new in the in the construct of how we commemorate and how we remember. 
this was a uh, this is a day that was uh, created essentially as an effort of the United Nations and, and governments around the, the world uh, to recognize the horrors of the Holocaust. Uh, however, when we think about photography from the Holocaust, it essentially conjures up what I would say um, familiar images, striped uniforms, uh, barbed wire, uh, decimated bodies, crammed rail cars, uh, aspects of destruction. When, when you were thinking about it from the standpoint of commemoration and, and remembrance, we were essentially thinking about survivors' stories and, and what those stories asked us to witness, uh, both the enormous loss and, and what their words uh, sort of took us through. And oftentimes, photographs or their words translated into diary or song or testimony uh, also uh, into sketches and drawings and, and, and paintings and the like, helping us understand forms of how their stories were told. Uh, today, we're seeing things a little bit differently. And um, I just saw a report, for instance, uh, that took place over the last two years, 60 million posts, comments, reactions, shares, uh, connecting the Holocaust to the, the COVID-19 pandemic were tied together across platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Uh, this is something that uh, I, I think we're, we've entered a territory that we're not quite uh, familiar with and we're not quite sure what the next step is. Interesting. Interesting. Now, I think part of when we think about this, you know, I, you say that you would have answered this differently in a pre-COVID era, but obviously even before COVID, this was in process, right? I mean, there, this, this sort of um, reliance on one or two iconic images, whether they be Nazi marches or prisoners in striped uniforms, and the recirculation of those images across media, whether it be social media or traditional media. I mean, this is, this is something that has been in formation for a while. This is actually something I talk about in my book, uh, where I have a whole chapter on the visual past and how the visual past privileges certain images that are already in the public domain and already easily accessible. So in other words, the more something is out there and easy to grab, the more it gets grabbed and repurposed and appropriated and reused. And so I wonder if, yes, we're seeing something distinct in how it's being, uh, these images are being conflated or appropriated in vaccine debates or in marches against COVID restrictions, but clearly there's an undercurrent that has been there before. And I wonder, from your perspective, someone who's been in this field for so long and worked at so many Jewish institutions, you know, how do you how do you think about this over sort of a longer durée and 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 maybe even a controversial statement? How much are uh, museums and the cultural institutions that we have worked for over our careers? How much of a role do we have to play in this by resurfacing familiar images over and over by? by doing these hashtag campaigns, by putting up exhibits that feature these very iconic images of decimated bodies that then get grabbed by other people and get used in other contexts. Um, it's a whole ecosystem, it seems to me, and it's an ecosystem where there's perhaps lots of complicity. I think there's gotta be a careful balance here. So when, when you're talking about Holocaust education, 
and you're pushing out content from a museum, whether it's an exhibition or an educational lesson plan or a public program, the, the hope is that you're inviting people into a conversation, into an experience that goes a bit more in depth. So um, sure, recycling kind of the, the familiar imagery, uh, something that many institutions do. I think the responsibility of museums in particular, where much of these collections lie, is to continue to unearth stories that people have not been exposed to before. How do you take how do you take photography, for instance, um, and, and translate that into the testimony of survivors and victims? How do you take photography and put a face to the perpetrators to help folks understand who are experiencing um, what it is that's being presented that they didn't look all that different from your neighbors, your friends, your family. How do we get to a place where the photography and the images are telling a story to people whose attention span is a lot less than it once was? Uh, folks who were preoccupied as they're walking through museums or even as they're reading books or they're watching movies or they're having an experience where they're being introduced to some form of uh, 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 historical um, content. How do we get them to pay attention? Oftentimes, it's the photographs that do that. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue to something else that I'd love to talk about with you, which is, you know, how much do these photographs reveal and how much do they then require and beg for further interpretation, right? And so I think it's a great segue, what you just said. We, we see an image of, uh, you know, prisoners in, in, in suits uh, behind barbed wire, or we see uh, a family from before the war and we're, we're meant to uh, sort of imagine the life that this family had and how it was all taken away uh, during the Shoah, which of course in many instances is what exactly happened, it happened to my grandparents and their family. Um, but then there's this sort of extra demand that we want to place on museum visitors or web users, which is to go deeper, to learn more, to, to dig further. And, um, and oftentimes, as you know, that doesn't always happen. Uh, people see the photograph and they sort of accept it at face value for what it is and, and they move on. So in your experience in this, in this work, how have you managed to do just that thing you said? Use the photograph as an entryway into further learning. And have you, have you actually seen that be effective? Have you seen those results? Well, I think for starters, um, anybody working in this space has a responsibility uh, to make the content accessible. So you talk about interpretation. Uh, this is a this is a subject that's not light, of course, and it's not easy to digest. And so, part of this is um, the details are endless. I mean, here we are, seventy seven years after the liberation of Auschwitz, and we are still learning details that are new each and every day. Part of what these institutions need to do, and what I what I believe are starting to do, have done is create new ways where that material is accessible. This is not, um, it shouldn't be an experience of disaster porn. It shouldn't be this, um, it, it, it shouldn't be something that is so off-putting to the end user, to the visitor, that it makes it uh, hard for them to stomach what it is that the, the lessons are, are, we're trying to 
to teach and, and to tell and to share. So how do we humanize that? How do we take a photograph? How do we take a film? How do we take a testimony? How do we take an artifact? And how do we put it out there so that the person who's looking, reading, viewing, experiencing has an opportunity to connect with the individual who was behind that material? I think that that's the, the absolute key to making sure that experiences in these institutions are effective and how children can learn, how adults can learn, how people who are interested or don't know that they're yet interested, how they have an opportunity to enter into that conversation. Yeah, and uh, I've just put above, uh, I'll cycle through the links throughout the show, I put up above the History Club newsletter, and I did that because this week I actually sent out a newsletter that uh, features a very iconic photograph from the Holocaust is from the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943. And what I, what I thought was interesting about that photograph was that that photograph was actually later used to identify the, um, the, the Nazi trooper who was holding his weapon in that picture. And as a result, he was tried uh, for war crimes in 1969 and, and he was executed for his involvement uh, in the Holocaust. So, it's 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 interesting when you think about the stories behind these photographs. It's not just what happened in the moment of the photograph was taken, but it's also how the photograph lives on and has a life afterward. How the photograph gets introduced as evidence in a trial. How it is used to identify uh, perpetrators and victims. How it's used to confirm that a certain person was uh, at a particular camp. How it's used by people who have relatives who perished in the Holocaust to find out what happened to their missing family members. There's all these different ways that these photographs become introduced as evidence into the historical record, into the legal record. And uh, that's all information that requires a little bit more digging and exploration than when we just see the image in our feeds or on our phones or on the wall inside of a museum exhibit. I think that's right. And I think there are certain collections that um, we can dive into, but there are certain collections that offer photography, uh, photographs documenting the moment that were never intended to see the light of day. And there was never a sense that when those photographs were taken, um, in some cases, yes, they were to record the moment, they were to record the devastation. But let's also remember that the Nazis were meticulous in their record keeping. And so the documentation that happened on one end was used for propaganda. On the other end, it was used to improve their systems, understand what was working, what wasn't working. It, really a, a fascinating way of looking at it. You talk about um, the photograph that you, uh, you reference, and now I'm seeing Henrik Ross pop up. So you, Henrik Ross, whose collection is part of Art Gallery Ontario, uh, is the, the subject of probably one of the most powerful photograph uh, exhibitions on the Holocaust that I've ever experienced, which is called Memory Unearthed. And Ross has this incredible story where uh, he was forced into the Lodge ghetto in, uh, in Poland in 1940. He was put to work. He was a photographer. He was put to work by the Nazis uh, as a bureaucratic photographer. And he spent four years in that I'll call it official position, documenting uh, life within the ghetto, in many cases covertly and uh, at risk to his own life. 
so let's keep in mind, you mentioned Warsaw, uh, Warsaw ghetto. Ludge ghetto was the second largest Jewish ghetto in German occupied Europe. So you had about 160,000 Jews who were forced into a space that was um, uh, not suitable for 10,000 Jews. Uh, many of those, um, many of those inhabitants of the ghetto, if you will, were later transported and, and murdered at both Helmno concentration camp and Auschwitz. What Ross did was uh, he, he documented everything from entry to liquidation. And he created sort of as the, as the camp, uh, sorry, as the ghetto was being liquidated, he, uh, he created, he burned negatives uh, and those negatives, he created the negatives, excuse me, he buried 6,000 of those near his home. After the war, miraculously, he survives. Uh, he goes back into that ghetto, into that space. He unearths the, uh, the, the canisters that were holding these negatives um, with his own hands, he and his wife. His wife survived as well. Uh, keep in mind, these negatives survived a Polish winter. That is not an easy thing. Uh, 3,000 of them survived. Many of those photos were used in Eichmann's trial to show the devastation of the war and what these Nazi bureaucrats and what these Nazi officials had done. Uh, so that certainly was not the intention when Ross was taking these photographs. Yeah, and I, I was really glad that you brought this collection to my attention the other day because I wasn't to be honest, I wasn't familiar with it. And I've actually put a link to this collection in my Flipboard story. I'll put my Flipboard story board back up in a little bit so people can see um, some of the other collections that I've highlighted in that story. Um, but here I've shared the, uh, the link to the Yad Vashem website. For those not familiar with Yad Vashem, probably the most important, you know, one or two, one and two, you could say USHMM and Yad Vashem, uh, Holocaust institutions in the world. Uh, with millions of objects and, and records related to uh, the Holocaust and, and the experiences uh, therein. And um, what I thought was really fascinating about this collection of photographs that you mentioned was that it was um, buried in the ground and not seen for 60 years. So to your point that you mentioned earlier, how uh, even though this is an event that's now 70 and 75 years in the past, uh, we're still uncovering new evidence. We're still uncovering new collections. We're still finding out things and seeing things that we didn't before. And that widens our understanding of what happened. It gives us different viewpoints into different people's lives. And it also raises more questions. And that's one of the things I found really fascinating about this collection the more I looked into it. When we think about Holocaust photography, we think about all the things we've already mentioned, uh, boxcars and um, prisoners behind barbed wire. Uh, but in this collection, you also see a young couple kissing in the bushes. Uh, you see uh, a birthday party for young kids when they're smiling at the camera and, and eating and, and seemingly having a good time. Uh, you see uh, a family, a, a young family, a, a man embracing a woman holding a small child in this very tender and warm moment. And you sort of have this cognitive dissonance where it's like, how could this be happening amidst all this death and chaos and destruction? And so 
again, one could imagine these photographs taken out of context and used in all kinds of ways, whether they be for educational purposes or misinformation purposes or even Holocaust denial purposes. So these photographs, when they get out there into the world, we sort of lose control over them. And in some ways, it sounds like that was one of the reasons why Ross didn't want these to be seen for so many decades is because he was concerned about how they might be interpreted. Uh, am, am I accurate in my read on that? And how do you how do you think about that? You know, I, I think that's an interesting point. You've got to keep in mind that even those who understood the level of despair as they had to give up their homes and were transported and they lost their belongings, there was never a sense as they entered the ghettos that life was over as they, as they knew it. And so many of the photos that show those happy, smiling moments and having worked on this exhibition, so this was one of the exhibitions that I had brought over to uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage a number of years ago, having worked on this, being able to see sort of the, the panoply of, of experience, whether it was the weddings or the, the celebrations, life, life went on in the best possible way. There were children, there was birth, there was death, there was, there was life cycle events, there, was, there were moments of, uh, there were moments that were being documented all the way through. Um, part of, to your point, part of this is context. So when you look at those photos, they were happening upon entry into the ghetto or early on in that experience. It was before the, the starvation. It was before the bodies uh, were in the streets because uh, from disease or, or, mal or, or, or sort of a lack of food and a lack of hygiene. It was really, um, that context is super important. I appreciate where Ross was coming from, but but I also appreciate the fact that his work helps add a layer of fact and truth and experience of what it was like during, uh, during the most awful of times, particularly in the ghetto. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And it's, again, I think one of the challenges of interpreting these photographs and building that context around it. And it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult, I've found in my own career, uh, just because of the, how the web works and how quickly we see these images and how these images tend to get flattened and presented and appropriated and reappropriated and misappropriated across different venues. But of course, the, the, there's so much depth in three dimensions to studying the Holocaust and understanding these images. And so how do you invite people into that? How do you get people engaged with that? It's a, it's a tremendous, tremendous challenge. And to the point that you raised when we started this conversation, you know, today it seems like it's even more of a challenge as the Holocaust gets appropriated and misappropriated across these different environments and in these political fights and these disinformation campaigns. Um, I'm wondering, you know, with, with, there's all this stuff in the news the past couple of days about Mouse and what happened in Tennessee, the school district in Tennessee that uh, decided to pull Mouse from its shelves um, because of graphic depictions in there, they alleged. Um, and obviously this raises a lot of questions and concerns, but I'm wondering, you know, for you as an educator and also as, as a parent and as, as a citizen, you know, how you think about introducing Holocaust education to children, um, at what ages, and how the best way to do it when, when there is 
it is such a, a horrific and despicable example in the human past of the evil that uh, we can do to one another as human beings. I know for me, as a grandchild of survivors, I always knew about the Holocaust. There wasn't a time that I could remember that I didn't know about it. And I had Holocaust books in my house from the earliest I can remember, including Mouse. I can remember exactly where Mouse was on the bookcase in my parents' house. Um, but of course, you know, Jewish family, a connection to the subject matter. Um, how have you thought about this in your own life and in your own career, introducing people to the topic and also the images, which of course, when we think about Auschwitz or Dachau are, are horrifying and, um, you know, incredibly powerful. So um, let me just say that uh, taking Mouse out of the hands of those students is inexcusable. And those folks who did so are not educators. They are um, historically illiterate and they lack, a, they lack a level of responsibility that educators have to ensure that the facts are taught and the truth is taught. And we're living in this post-truth moment, which makes all of these situations that much more complicated. Um, I, I think what I would hope, what I do hope, is that we're going to be able to lean on media to be able to call out these sort of moments and these actions, and that it will demand these individuals to have a rethink of the decision-making that, that's going on that is really really poorly done. Uh, so to your question about age, um, I, I think obviously uh, age appropriate introduction um, is, is super important. Uh, it's one of those things that children need to be introduced to this, but they need to be introduced to this in, an, in a thoughtful manner, in a thoughtful way. I, I think about, for instance, um, we did a film with HBO, The Number on Great Grandpa's Arm. And this was a, a beautiful story about Jack Feldman, a Holocaust survivor who lived up in, uh, uh, who, who lived in upstate New York, who was having a conversation with his great grandson. And that conversation was, uh, you, you had this incredible animation that was done to complement the, the, the story about why Jack had these numbers uh, tattooed on his arm and what that meant and, and what he went through. Uh, that, was a, that was an experience that I think children of you know, a particular age, I was comfortable having my kids who, when that came out, my, my youngest was in fourth grade, I was incredibly comfortable having her get introduced to that content. I think part of what we need to do is make sure that um, we're thinking about the, the tools that can be used to introduce the subject in ways that could be um, enhanced as these children get older. And as we think about it, you know, there, there's no easy answer and there's no, um, there's no particular um, moment that is absolutely right. But I do think that people have had very uneven experiences in this country. You can look, you can look for instance, at um, Claims Conference, who does these surveys uh, of late and looking at the impact and the effect of Holocaust education. And you can see in places like New York, for instance, uh, which has mandated Holocaust education, 
they ranked one of the worst in the uh, among the 50 states in terms of knowledge and understanding among students who are going through programs. So part of this is really a rethink about uh, how this content gets introduced. And of course, you don't want young kids seeing the, the devastation, but certainly there's an opportunity to explain um, conflict and trauma and war and uh, and being dislodged and immigration and migration and, and so on and so forth. I think that's the responsibility of educators and putting that in the context of the Holocaust is important. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. Let me quickly just refresh the room here, reset the room as we say on Clubhouse, uh, because we've been talking for a little bit over 35 minutes. Uh, this is History Club and welcome to all of you who've joined us. There's been about 235 people or so who've passed through the room, which is great. Uh, today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, held on the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, which was actually liberated by the Soviets. Uh, American and British forces liberated uh, uh, camps in Germany and Austria in March and April of 1945. Auschwitz uh, liberated in January. Um, and we're talking with Michael Glickman. And uh, tonight's conversation is actually sponsored by Flipboard, which is just, we're so grateful and it's so incredible that Flipboard has come here onto Clubhouse to help us put these conversations together. Um, it's an amazing platform, Flipboard is. I hadn't used it in a few years, but I'm really excited about its possibilities. I've got a profile on Flipboard if you want to check out what I'm doing there. It's basically a site where you can curate uh, your own storyboards or your own mini exhibits about whatever subject interests you. And uh, I'm interested in photography, I'm interested in history, and I'm interested in the collision and the, of those two ideas. And so I've put together a little storyboard which is above my head which i encourage you to click on and check out about photography and the holocaust and on that storyboard you can see some of the collections that michael and i have been referencing the frederick ross uh, excuse me the henrik ross collection that he mentioned which was uh, buried for 60 years and only recently revealed this huge cache of photographs taken inside the lodge ghetto in poland you can see a link to that collection on my Flipboard. I've also got collections to photographs held by the Museum of Jewish Heritage, by the Jewish Museum in Berlin, by the Holocaust Museum in Washington. I've also got stuff from the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Um, so it's a really, really cool platform, and it's a great place to dive in and do a little bit more digging about the stuff that we've been talking about here tonight. So I encourage you to check it out and I encourage you to check out Flipboard in general. Uh, really, really cool technology, actually. I'm super excited about it. So I'm looking forward to, to using it more often. Um, and uh, Michael, I want to maybe just do a couple more questions with you and then I want to invite some people up uh, to join the conversation with us because that's really where the magic of Clubhouse kicks in when you get the conversation with people in the room from different perspectives and they get a chance to ask questions and share their insights. Um, so if you're okay with that, maybe I'll ask you one or two more and then we'll get a couple other people into the room before we wrap up. Sure, please do. Awesome. Um, I wanna also ask you a little bit about um, maybe your own personal connections uh, or maybe your own, uh, obviously you work professionally in this arena. Um, but in your own personal life, in your day-to-day -day life, when you're not consulting with museums or running museums, um, you know, I wonder how you think about the Holocaust 
75 years later, at a moment where, you know, we're increasingly having fewer and fewer survivors and those who can bear witness to it. Um, when you think about this, not as a museum professional, but just as a citizen of this planet, what comes to mind? Are you encouraged, discouraged? Do you feel some sort of existential dread? Do you feel uh, a sense of gratitude for uh, the fact that we have these types of commemorations, that we have these institutions who have collected these items that we can dig into and explore? Again, not with your museum leadership hat on, but just as a citizen of, the, of this planet in society, where are you temperature check right now when it comes to our understanding of the Holocaust and Holocaust education moving forward? That's a loaded question. This um, is what we do. I, I we ask loaded questions. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to say all of the above. You know, my experience was entirely different than yours in the sense um, I, I grew up in a, uh, I, I grew up in a, very uh, uh, sort of Jewish suburb of New York, uh, a suburb of the city uh, here in New York. And I had absolutely, um, despite how, uh, how big the Jewish community was, I had no exposure whatsoever um, to Holocaust survivors that I knew or knew of. Um, my family that I knew at the time had no direct experience. It was just never anything that really crossed my mind. Um, I, I became fascinated with this when I, I did take sort of a step in the professional world. Um, but I think outside of that, uh, I, I'm both hopeful and widely concerned. Um, I'm hopeful because there are institutions out there who are just doing incredible meaningful, impactful work, things that we never could have envisioned a generation ago. And yet we're seeing just how difficult it is to break through and have people understand sort of the moment we're living in and that moment of uh, survivors are, are, are passing on in, in numbers that will make it near impossible for many children today to ever have an experience meeting, knowing, or hearing in real time from a survivor. And yet at the, the same time, um, I, I'm, I'm really concerned about, I'm concerned about how facts and truth have sort of disappeared from public discourse. I'm concerned that we've gotten to a point that it almost doesn't matter what the facts are because there are, uh, there are elements out there that are just gonna make it near impossible for those facts to get through. So um, uh, I, I'm, I'm both proud and scared, happy and, uh, or, or pleased maybe is a, a better um, way of saying it and, and wildly concerned. Well, listen, who was it? I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said that uh, it's a sign of intelligence to hold two contradictory thoughts in your head at the same time and still be able to function. So this just means that it confirms that you are an intelligent man, uh, being able to hold those two contradictory thoughts in your head. Uh, I, Functioning I wanna... is questionable. <laughs> you're, you're doing well for 1045 at Eastern on the, uh, you know, here on the East Coast. Uh, I also want to, I feel like we can't have a conversation about photography and the Holocaust without also at least mentioning these phenomenon on platforms like TikTok and Instagram where um, 
particularly young young students are going to sites like Auschwitz or sites like Dachau and um, doing the selfies and in some cases doing selfies that have uh, you know, signals or signs or handstands or um, you know there's there's been a fair amount of media coverage about this and there's been some some alarm expressed by educators and others about the way people are expressing themselves on these sacred grounds where so many lives were lost and so many horrific crimes were committed. But then, of course, also we are living in this selfie age where, for better or for worse, in my book, I kind of argue for worse, we, we, we embrace these practices, we, we like, we share, we comment, we snap pictures of ourselves everywhere we go, we post them online. And maybe that helps to raise awareness about things, but maybe it also helps to uh, cheapen things or to uh, reduce the complexity and the bar um, atrocities of these things to, to memes or snappable moments on Instagram. Uh, how do you think about these phenomena and, and the way uh, Holocaust selfies get represented on social media platforms? Do you have an opinion one way or the other about whether these are this is a good thing, this is a, a bad thing, this is just a sort of a manifestation of where we are right now thing? Yeah, it, it's definitely not a good thing. Um, I, I think we're living through this moment where um, literally it is every experience is about the moment that you're in. And so uh, we, we've seen some appalling things happen. Uh, in, in these sites of memory and these sacred grounds, whether it's Auschwitz or, um, or someplace else. And this is, not, this is not entirely specific to sites of Holocaust-specific um, memory or history. I, I think they're, um, we're, not doing, we're not doing our children a service. We're not helping these kids understand the implications for ignoring the world around them and walking over to uh, the work will set you free sign in front of Auschwitz uh, and, and, taking a, a, and taking a selfie and posting it to Facebook. Uh, it, with, we're, we're sort of, we're struggling with, I struggle, but we are struggling with this moment of, how to get people to understand that is the that is the thing that is very different today so technology is both a blessing and a curse um it's a blessing for instance when you look at what uh usc shoah foundation is doing and the ability to take survivors and have them record their testimony in a way that allows an individual to have a conversation with them in this really sort of incredible augmented reality, virtual reality experience. And yet technology is also destroying the ability to ensure that anything is sacred any longer. And so um, these institutions need to do a better job at helping their visitors understand what's appropriate and what's not. Uh, we as parents need to do a better job at helping our kids understand. Teachers need to be able to uh, do a better job. There, there's more that needs to be done at this point because uh, a continuation of this is, uh, we're not going down the right path in that sense. 
Yeah. Well, let me try to ask my last question to you that can maybe leave us on a little bit higher note and bring us into conversation with people in the audience who've been listening. We've had about 330 people who've come through the room now, which is great. Um, but, uh, you know, it strikes me in thinking about photography and the Holocaust and how those two intersect. You know, it's because individual citizens took the initiative to take photographs that we know so much about the Holocaust, right? Because as you said earlier, obviously the Germans took their meticulous record keeping, uh, but it's not from that that we really know any of the victims or the names or the faces or the stories or what life was really like. It's because people took it into their own hands to document their experiences, whether it be in writing or photographs like Henrik Ross or uh, other acts of resistance that happened, uh, not just in Europe, but around the world. And it's because of that photographic record and that oral history record and those, those written records that we're able to have Holocaust education really at all. So I guess I'm kind of wondering, is there something that is maybe if we look back in the historical record, we can say there's something very empowering about documenting and about photographing and about citizens and, and ordinary people photographing, not just professional photographers or those who, you know, work in fields where they're paid to, to take photographs or produce images. But that sort of citizen record keeping, um, it's become incredibly invaluable to future historians and scholars to understand what happened. And so we can be grateful for that and for the courage that it took to do that in the midst of horrific circumstances. And maybe there's something also for us today in that, in the sense that, you know, when we document, we are creating a lasting record that can help those who come after us understand what we've lived through. Without question. I, I mean, it, it, it sort of, uh, it, it comes down to, uh, it, it comes down to a Jewish value of, of remembrance. It comes down to uh, the responsibility to uh, to learn and educate. Uh, I, I think um, these photographs have also done incredibly powerful things. I, I think about the, I think about, for instance, the the kids who were orphaned during the war who ended up in uh, a convent outside of Dachau concentration camp uh, called Kloster Indersdorf. And uh, it was the photographs that were taking, uh, taken of these children, many of whom were reunited with family, maybe not their parents, but reunited with family around the world. Uh, we can see the power of photographs. There's, uh, uh, there's a, a wonderful photojournalist named B.A. Van Sice who has done some really incredible um, work of documenting survivors uh, of, of recent memory uh, and being able to help sort of introduce the, their photos to a, a grander public audience. Uh, I happen to be working with BA on an exhibition that'll open up uh, in the next couple of months called Invited to Life. You see these incredible intergenerational photos. Um, it, it's sort of, it, it's full circle. It's the combination of um, moving from uh, suffering of victims and the decimation of communities to the power of survival and uh, and the resilience of of uh, uh, 
an individual to rebuild their life. It, it's sort of photographs play an incredibly, um, an incredibly powerful role in that conversation and in that story and in that, and in that teaching. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, that's a great segue into bringing up a couple people to share their thoughts on this intersection between photography and history, in particular, the role that photography has played in documenting the Holocaust and also our understandings of the Holocaust as we have this conversation on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And again, we're sponsored by Flipboard tonight. So grateful to them for their collaboration in this. Um, just a quick rules of the road before we bring a couple people up. Um, we do have strict rules here in History Club about uh, how we interact with each other. And so we don't tolerate any hate speech, and particularly on this day, we do not tolerate any anti-Semitism. So if that's what you're planning on bringing to the conversation, you can leave now, uh, take that somewhere else. And um, we do ask that you keep it to a question, or if it's a short statement, uh, but please don't come up and promote your consulting business or your whatever else you may be working on at the moment. It's not really the appropriate time for that. Uh, we really just want to hear your thoughts about this conversation, questions you have for Michael or me about Holocaust education, about the role of photography in the Holocaust, if there are particular photograph collections that Michael has mentioned that you want to learn more about or want to get pointed towards more resources. Um, Anything in that vein, it would be great to contribute to the conversation. So I'll start bringing a couple people up. And Michael, you just let me know how you're doing in terms of time. It is getting late here on the East Coast, so you've been very generous with your time so far. We'll take a couple of questions and we can kind of feel it out how much further you want to go. Sound cool? Yes, sorry. <laughs> Missed the All right. button. So let me bring up a couple of, of folks here while we get started. And uh, Zach, um, welcome to History Club and um, would love to hear what's on your mind. Thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. you sound great. Okay, great. Um, so uh, I appreciate it uh, very much. Um, I'm going to be checking out uh, your Flipboard uh, later. Um, so in regards to photography specifically in the Holocaust, um, I heard you mention earlier, and I've also heard this before, that you know New York State is one of the states that do mandate uh, Holocaust education, which of course I'm for. Um, however, as, as you mentioned, New York State has a very <clears throat> uh, high rate of people that are still seems to be ignorant about the Holocaust. So I was curious, on what you think that reason is and if you think that photography specifically or maybe videos might have a role in uh, improving that with education uh, because of course uh, you're reading something in text uh, you know it may not necessarily uh, be as uh, uh, maybe uh, mindful to you as something uh, in a photograph so I think the important distinction um, in, in a place like New York, and uh, which is the case in many places, is that while Holocaust education is mandated, there is not a curriculum that is overseen by state education. And so it essentially requires teachers in English language arts classes and social studies classes 
uh, in a number of different grades, um, uh, sort of uh, in some cases, middle school uh, through high school to have Holocaust education taught, but it doesn't provide the resources for the how, and it doesn't tell them what should be done. So there's a great deal of inconsistency. And I think in a subject like the Holocaust, it could be wildly overwhelming for a teacher, for an educator to have to figure out what are the most appropriate resources to be able to bring into the classroom. And so oftentimes um, it, it may not get done the way it needs to get done. I think photography can be incredibly powerful. I think the idea that uh, you know, age appropriate content being introduced to students uh, would create an opportunity for them to maybe have a better understanding of uh, how to under, how to how to be taught the history of the Holocaust as a history of individuals, as opposed to um, a particular moment in time where if they don't know any Jews, if they don't know any Holocaust survivors, if this hasn't affected their family, if this hasn't affected their neighbors, it just feels like an event. It feels like something that happened to the Jews and not necessarily, uh, it doesn't make it relatable. And Zach, if I may take a swing at your question from a slightly different angle. So I just wrote a book called History Disrupted, how social media and the World Wide Web have changed the past. And one of my chapters in the book is a chapter called The Visual Past. And I talk about how in the in the realm of social media and the web, where so many people get their information, including information about history, the web has this sort of flattening effect where we see an image amidst our feed. You know, we're looking on Instagram at cooking and travel and athletics, and then we see maybe a image about the Holocaust for Holocaust Remembrance Day or uh, an account that we follow, a museum that we follow, posts an image, and then we keep scrolling. And I've been thinking a lot about the sort of cumulative effects of that, of those mechanics, of that entire ecosystem. And one of the things I worry about is actually, I worry that all of this visual history that's flooding the public sphere and the internet is actually not helping people understand history. It's actually just making people more addicted to the social web. And I write about this in the book, but I think it's a little bit germane to your question because, you know, if you learn about the Holocaust uh, in one school year or one part of one school year, but you're spending all your time on the web, day, evening, uh, morning, noon, and night, ingesting all of this, what I call e-history, then it's, it's, it's sort of not a fair fight, right? I mean, you have all of this information online every day bombarding our feeds, and then in the midst of that, maybe for half a year or a quarter of a year or one month inside your long educational career, you take a little bit of Holocaust history. And I, I worry about how this gap between what academics and scholars and people like Michael know about the Holocaust and the broader public thinks it knows about the Holocaust or understands about the Holocaust, how that widens and becomes even wider when we rely on social media and just one or two images that we see in our feed or one or two videos that pop up on YouTube for wrapping our minds around such complex, seismic, horrific global events.
so I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that, that's your question sort of reminded me of a couple of strands I pull on in my book. So I, I guess if I'm understanding correctly, you think that at times uh, when we focus too much on the image, it could essentially uh, trivialize what we're trying to uh, to not trivialize. Is that kind exactly? Of you actually said it much more concisely than I did. I should have had you ghostwrite my book for me, but yeah, <laughs> that's I said it in about 160 pages, and you said it in about one sentence. So kudos to you. Um, but stay up here for a second. Let's get a couple other people into the conversation. I appreciate um, the question very much, Zach, but I wanna uh, maybe turn to Chanel uh, to ask a question to Michael or to any of us here on stage. Well, good evening, everybody. I hope that all is well. Happy Thursday. So I, I have a friend that actually went to, I'm a graduate from Kennesaw State University here in Kennesaw, Georgia. And she actually ran the Museum of History and Holocaust Education for a while. So I just wanted to ask a question for Jason and Michael. Do you have any pictures that are very striking to you? And since you've been actually doing the exhibit, so that's just my question. And thank you for taking the time and educating me about this. Well, thank you for being here and that is Great. So hello to you in Kennesaw, Georgia. What an awesome place to be. So um, thanks for that. I, I, I think that I've been struck by a number of photos. Um, I, I'll point to one particular collection that I think might um, uh, speak to this. So uh, USHMM, United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, has a... Um, an artifact in their collection called the Hawker album. And this album uh, really is an extraordinary uh, compilation of photographs depicting the SS and high ranking Nazi officials sort of in their daily life in Auschwitz. Uh, you're not seeing them in the, um, uh, you're you're not seeing them in the perspective of uh, as murderers and uh, uh, as uh, sort of evil uh, individuals. You're seeing them celebrating among their their comrades, uh, uh, interacting these men, interacting with women. Uh, you're seeing them. Um, you're seeing them uh, mourn the loss of those killed after a allied air raid uh, in December of 44. It's sort of a striking parallel um, uh, for me in particular to see uh, sort of the way life was in the camp compared to the way life was for those who were running the camp. Uh, it's one of the few instances where um, you get a, a bird's eye view into uh, in, into their lives and who these individuals were really through photographs and one of the only, only known uh, records of, uh, of that particular time. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chanel, for the question and great answer, Michael. And um, Michael, maybe afterwards, I'll add to my Flipboard some of these links that you're talking about if I don't have them already. That way people can go to the Flipboard and see some of these collections in these museums uh, that you're talking about. So another great use case for Flipboard. 
Uh, I'd love to bring my friend Susie into the conversation. Susie is actually a photographer, professional photographer, uh, is a huge advocate for photography and its role in the world, its role in preserving history. And she's also just a wonderful person that I've gotten to know and love over the years. So uh, Susie would love to have you contribute to the conversation. Oh, Susie, you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Okay, great. Turning off the mute helps. Um, it's uh, nice to meet you, Michael. And uh, Jason, I love you and the work that you do. Um, I spent a lot of time in and around photography with my nonprofit. And what I'm thinking about in terms of what you're speaking about are all the photographs that might be in people's albums that can be real conversation starters across generations that are people don't know who's in them and it would help people understand on a more personal level perhaps what their parents and their grandparents lives were like and I think that could really help with education and the other thing that I was thinking about are all the photographs that were lost, all the photographs that were not seen because people didn't care to keep them or ones that might be in an attic somewhere that could really add to history. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that about how that could add to education and personalize this story more. Well, thank you, Susie, and nice to meet you as well. Uh, you know, I, 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 think you're, I think you're spot on. Um, one of the reasons, uh, for instance, that Anne Frank and that and her diary has been so widely read uh, around the world is because it is so relatable. Um, it is uh, you're you're getting a, a window into the the life of a young girl uh, who's growing up and, and having experiences. Um, I, I think part of that. Uh, could certainly be translated into family albums. There's no question uh, what was lost. If we think about it from a Holocaust standpoint, um, uh, documenting life before the war, uh, what were these Jewish communities like? What were these Jewish homes like? What were these cities like? Uh, where, where there was essentially um, not as much uh, anti-Semitism in certain communities and Jews lived peacefully among their non-Jewish neighbors and and friends and those interactions, seeing photographs along those lines. Um, there's no question that the opportunities we have to personalize history and put a name and a face to a story makes it, we know that it makes it that much more relatable and, uh, and understandable. And I think to that point, you know, the more we can do in that space, uh, the better off we are, at least around Holocaust education. But I imagine um, that's a, a point that is, worth pursuing it and understanding across a whole variety of different subjects as well. And Susie, to your point, I've actually just pinned a link to an article I wrote about my grandmother a couple of years ago. My grandmother was a Holocaust survivor who never shared her story, never talked about the war. She talked about life before the war and after the war, but never during. It was too painful. When she passed and my parents cleaned out her house, we found, to your point, <clears throat> some photographs that she had been keeping. And 
one of those photographs actually included um, a young woman holding an assault rifle who we assume must have been uh, uh, a friend of hers or a colleague of hers who was in the armed resistance. Because my grandmother, we know from little bits that she did say that she was in the woods with the partisans, probably from 1944 to 1945, as part of an armed resistance movement against German occupation. Uh, but of course, we have no idea who this person is. There's no annotation to let us know who this person is. And the rest of the photographs and the albums that we found also are completely unmarked. So it has raised all kinds of questions for us as a family that we will never be able to answer. But what it's also done is it's, it's sparked conversations among us as a family uh, about my grandmother's experiences exchanges we were ever able, never able to have with her, but exchanges now and conversations now that I've had with my mom, and with my sisters, uh, you know, going to different sites to try to track down more information, trying to piece together more of the story and also creating more connection among us who have this responsibility to carry her story forward. So I think it's a good point that you raise. It's also an illustration of how Again, photographs can only tell us so much when we see them, but they can spark conversations and they can spark ways to, to bring people together. So um, thank you for, for that. Um, let me bring Ray into the conversation and then Michael, maybe we'll just do those of the people who are on stage and then we'll call it a night and uh, save other questions for another time because uh, it is starting to get a little bit late. But uh, Ray is another friend and uh, longtime friend um, who has been a great supporter of History Club and who's also an artist who has done her own uh, work around imagery and the Holocaust and photography. So I think she's got a really interesting perspective and everyone should check out her work, which has been on display in various museums across the country. Oh, thank you, Jason. That's very kind of you. Um... And thank you for organizing this conversation. I'm so sorry I missed the beginning, but I will definitely be replaying um, and listening to everything that has been um, spoken about. This topic is fascinating and has been endless uh, inspiration for me, um, but it's also a very complicated um, topic to deal with as an artist. And I won't, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't wanna uh, make this about uh, my art, I'll just give a little um, explanation that one of the things that I, I did in a project that I've been working on in recent years is uh, reach out to families that have images from before the war um, and include them in, in basically a interactive uh, in art installation. And as part of this process, um, I, I was working at a an art center that is open to the public. And occasionally I would get groups of students and um, visitors that would come through the studio to see, you know, the artist working on her um, artwork. And it was just fascinating. This was, this took place in Kansas City. It was just fascinating to interact with teenagers about this topic because they came in to see how an artist works um, in her studio. But the opportunity was for me was to have a conversation with them about genocide, about the Holocaust, about um, 
what what does it mean to talk about the other? Who is the other? Who was the other during those days? And who is the other in our in the time that we live in? Um, and how dangerous thinking of of other people in that way um, can be. And one of the things that I found, and I you know, I want to build up towards a question. Um, one of the things that I found in my experience was that as an artist, I had um, a gateway that wasn't necessarily possible for the teachers. Because a lot of times teachers, even if they are, let's say, allowed to speak about the topic or if they you know, bring in, and usually it's something about Anne Frank or Schindler's List, um, they are fearful about what can or can't be said. And often they don't have enough knowledge on their own. But they have the curiosity and they want to share the information with their, with their students. And by having an interaction with a third party, um, that's not, you know, the, the rebel artist can always um, say what she wants to say. Um, it opened an opportunity for conversation. And so I'm curious as, I'm curious what are other opportunities that we can see um, in creating these types of engagements? Um, and what, how can we use the information that's been collected and databases are huge and there's so much research and so many photographs that are fascinating and so many stories to tell how can we use that in ways that don't necessarily rely on the education system but give the education system tools um, to dive deeper into the top topic so thank you ray um i i think that's the million dollar question uh it, we sort of the, the global we have to do a better job at making sure that educators have the resources that they need. Um, I, I think about some of these tools uh, that exist that are available to educators uh, sort of seamlessly and easily that I think have done a really powerful job, maybe not um, they, on their own. They don't necessarily, they don't do the job, for instance, of, of teaching everything that needs to be taught, but, uh, there's a, a program. Um, there's a, a program called Facing History in Ourselves, uh, which has done really wonderful things in classrooms across the country and around the world, of being able to take this history and helping to make teachers, helping to provide teachers with with a, a level of resources to uh, sort of deliver that uh, into their classrooms. They do a great job with training. Uh, you think of USC Shoah Foundation, which I mentioned before, um, they have a program called Eyewitness. And this is an opportunity for kids to essentially uh, self-curate based on resources that have been evaluated and are age appropriate and are responsible to help them curate uh, the ability to tell a story uh, and to learn about a subject. Uh, and, and there are more, of course, but um, I think really to your point, we need to do a better job at aggregating what are reliable sources and make it as easy as possible for educators to sort of dive in and pull access uh, and pull the content out so that they can access it in the classrooms. And honestly, that's a great segue to Flipboard. And I, I say that as I put the link back up, because I think that was actually one of the surprisingly powerful things about using a Flipboard, it does create this opportunity for educators and curators and scholars to put together these beautiful access points. And so these links that you've talked about tonight, Michael, 
I've got some of them on the flipboard, but I'm going to go back and add some more after I listen to this and, and capture all of them. I, I love that eyewitness program that you mentioned at USC. For example, I should add that to the board. Um, but, but the remixing of all this stuff that is out there and the curating and the ability to put it into an attractive format and deliver it to people seamlessly, that all matters when it comes to education and raising awareness and sorting out information from misinformation and disinformation. And um, so I think there are some tools out there that can be used and maybe we in the, in the field haven't been as good about using them. Um, and I think maybe there are opportunities for us to do some more things like working with Flipboard or working with Clubhouse or working with other platforms that have really built large audiences and really beautiful tools that are available for us to use. I hope that's kind of the future of Web 3.0. It's, it's a lot more of using the tools that are out there to create our own little spaces on the internet where we have excellent content, accurate content, thoughtful conversation. Imagine how much more beautiful the web would be if that's what it was as opposed to memes and clickbait and everything else that fills our feeds every day. But uh, James, thanks for joining us. You get the honor of asking the last question of the <laughs> evening before we wrap it up. So I appreciate right. you waiting. All right, yeah, to James from Atlanta, Georgia. It's more of a statement. And I think that people really need to be more well-educated about the Holocaust. You know, I call it, like when I talk to my friends, I call it almost like a tragic comparison because when I bring it up to my friends, some of my friends are African-American, instead of them understanding the tragedy, they'll bring up the slave trade and how bad that was. And then I might talk to my Native American friends and they'll blame up, you know, what happened in America and it was in all the land that was stolen or my Latin friends. So I think that's one thing that uh, people need to be more educated in and everything's just a tragedy. I think that uh, two things uh, that are happening now that can really help out uh, educate mo more people about the Holocaust is one thing I don't know have you ever heard of holographic projection education yes so I, I was gonna say uh, you know USC has done an incredible job of that um, taking survivors and and putting them on screen in ways right. that allow kids and adults to interact with them in real time it's, it's really quite remarkable yeah, what they did was they um, they actually like uh, interviewed a lot of the victims from the Holocaust and asked them a bunch of questions, you know. So now in the future, they'll have the holograph of them and students will come and ask questions and, they, and they'll be able to answer the questions, you know. Um, I think another thing that can help out is the grand grandkids of the victims are going to just have to step up, you know. Because the, the, the future is the youth. So the youth of those victims is going to have to step up and start putting stuff on TikTok and all these social media to kind of bring more rev relevance to the Holocaust. That's my only statement. I, I, I think your point's well taken. I mean, I, w I would say um, one of the responsibilities that we all have in whatever we are teaching and whatever we are trying to impart onto the next generation is uh, we've got to stop comparing the traumas uh, of experience and, and, and sort of comparing the isms, right? Uh, this is, um, we, need, we need to equally learn about all of these defining moments in history 
that have sort of brought us to this place where we are right now. And I think if we can do that, we are uh, we're well prepared uh, to venture into the future uh, and, and get these kids educated in a meaningful way that that leads to that leads to good. So uh, thanks so much for for pointing that out. Yeah, no, that holograph thing is really, really interesting. I haven't experienced that in person, but I've read about it. And I think I've seen a couple of videos about it. It's uh, some of the technology that's out there is just incredible. Some of it is completely terrifying, but, <laughs> you know, but we, we can't go into the future timidly. We have to go into the future boldly. So I appreciate all the different platforms and technologies that are out there. Uh, they carry tremendous potentials. They also carry tremendous peril. And I think part of what we have to do as concerned citizens and as media literate and historically literate citizens is to continue to uh, challenge ourselves to think about both sides, both the potentials and the pitfalls of these technologies, uh, what they can do for us in terms of wanting to see the world that we want to see and teaching us the things that we need to learn, as well as the potential that they can do when they fall into the hands of those who would try to mislead, spread propaganda, spread hate and misinformation. And I think this topic tonight, the question of photography and the Holocaust, it it's, it's falls squarely in both camps. It can be used to educate, inform, inspire, and heal, but it can also be used to misinform uh, as part of propaganda campaigns or disinformation campaigns. And it can also give us entryways that if we then don't follow up and ask more questions or learn more about what the photograph is showing us, it can leave us with an incomplete understanding. So I think we've kind of covered both in this conversation, which is a lot uh, to get through in uh, less than 90 minutes. So uh, Michael, as we wrap up here, and as I thank everyone for participating and the 600 people who have come through this room tonight, I wonder um, where you're at now as we've kind of reach the conclusion and uh, what's going through your mind as we wrap up. So thanks, Jason. I, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation and, um, uh, and one I've truly appreciated. I, I think if we can leave on a, a parting message, it's this. It's um, as we continue to learn about the Holocaust and the events of the, the Holocaust and the implications and, and, and so on, uh, we've got a responsibility to learn about and remember the Holocaust as uh, around the individuals who experienced it. And I think as we, um, as we push further into that experience, uh, we create new opportunities for, uh, we, we create new opportunities to learn and engage and reflect. And so um, thank you. Thanks for, for having me tonight. And um, I wanna thank everybody who joined today, this evening. Uh, really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking time out of your schedule, uh, for being here tonight and for being part of this. Um, I am excited to actually go back and look at some of the links that you mentioned, some of which I was familiar with, but others I was not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and listen to the recording. I'll put a few more links on my Flipboard and I will send out through the newsletter, the History Club newsletter, an updated link to my Flipboard story that has information about 
photograph collections related to the Holocaust, links that Michael has cited in this discussion tonight, so that people can learn more and dig into some of these collections and learn more about those individuals who, uh, whose stories are, are so critical to our understanding of this seismic and important event, not just in Jewish history, but in human history. So I've put up my link to my Substack here again. I encourage you to subscribe uh, because I'll be sharing more information in there about upcoming events, the information and links that I get from this conversation. And this weekend, I'm also planning to share more in the newsletter about this amazing collaboration that History Club is doing with Flipboard. And so let me take one more opportunity as we close out this conversation to thank Flipboard for sponsoring this conversation tonight, for giving me access to their powerful platform to be able to showcase some of these collections that Michael has referenced, whether it be at the Holocaust Museum in Washington or Yad Vashem in Israel or the Jewish Museums in Berlin. And in the newsletter this weekend, I'll send out much more information about the upcoming events we have planned with Flipboard. Next month for Black History Month, we're gonna do a conversation about photography and the civil rights movement. And then the following month in March, we'll do a conversation about photography in the women's suffrage movement. So I hope you'll join us for that. I hope you'll stay tuned. I hope you'll follow me on Flipboard and follow me here on Clubhouse, sign up for the newsletter. And to the 700 plus people who've come through this room tonight, thank you so much for being part of the conversation. And we'll hope to see you next time. So until then, have a wonderful rest of your evening and good night, everyone.